Good morning, Seven Mile Road. We continue to pray for you and miss gathering with you. And soon we will be able to gather again. But until that time, let's focus our hearts and our minds on God's word in John chapter 10. And as we come to this passage, let me remind you of some of the basic questions we should, be all, we should always be asking every time we come to the scriptures. The first is, what does God want me to think and understand? As God's children, we want to align our thoughts with the thoughts of God, and we do that through his word. We also want to ask God, what do you want me to believe? Sometimes the most fundamental application is, is at the level of our beliefs, what we believe to be good, true, and beautiful. The next would be, what does God want me to desire? God wants to affect change from the inside out at the level of our desires. And then finally, what does God want me to do? We don't come to the scriptures passive. We come to them ready to act to respond to what God would have us do. So let's pray and ask that God would help shape our thoughts, our beliefs, our desires, and our actions according to the pattern of his word. Father, thank you that your word is truth. You've given us your word as a pattern and a guide to affect all of our life, what we believe, what we think, what we desire, what we do. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to change us from the inside out. We can't do that change on our own, and we ask that you would work at the level of our hearts, at the, at the place where soul and spirit come together, and that you would change us from the inside out. We love you and trust you for this work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what makes a good life? People have been thinking about this question in one form or another from the beginning of time. Some do it professionally, we call them philosophers, but everyone does it intuitively. We set the full weight of our drive and desires. We give our attention and our affection on what we think will give us the good life we know we're made for. Perhaps for you, it's the love of another person, a picture-perfect marriage. Perhaps for you, it's at the, the level of, of affluence and financial security where you can afford the finer things in life and you're shielded from economic crisis. Perhaps for you, it's success and influence and acclaim in your career. Maybe for you, it's just a simple, long life, free from major sickness and suffering. Perhaps for you, it's having children who turn out successful and know how to adult. Perhaps for you, it's making a difference in this world where humanity as a whole is better off because of your investment. Maybe for you, in this time, you're just saying, Clint, I would just love a world without the turmoil of COVID-19. Or maybe you're saying, for me, the good life is a world free of all of the racial and political strife. I would just love a world where there's harmony and peace. And maybe you're like me, and I've said, I, I would like a little bit of all of that list, all of the above. And while there's nothing wrong with that list, it's not a bad list, it's a good list, but it has one fatal flaw. It is a list without God, and therefore, it's missing everything. Paul David Tripp captures this sentiment well. He says, so many of our ideas of what the good life is don't actually have God in them. We envision the good life apart from the grace of his presence, his promises, and his provisions. It's the subtle belief that life somehow, some way, can be found outside him. He is not life to us. He's the deliverer of life. He's not the end that we hunger for, but he's the means to the end we crave. Family, does your vision of the good life have God as an end 
or the needs? Do things like family and personal relationships, money, prestige, career, leisure time, pleasure, positively impacting the world, whatever it be, are those the highest goods you seek? This morning as we come to John chapter 10, Jesus is going to make a bold declaration. He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus says, I have come to give you and me the good life. But he doesn't come as a cosmic vending machine who dispenses treats according to our appetite. He comes as the good shepherd who knows his sheep and lovingly, bravely, sacrificially, and abundantly cares for his sheep. As we walk through John chapter 10 this morning, we're going to learn three things about Jesus as our good shepherd. First, we'll learn that the good shepherd is present with us. Second, we'll learn that the shepherd provides for us. And finally, we'll see that the good shepherd promises life for us. So we're going to see the shepherd's presence, his provision, and his promise. So first, let's start with the shepherd's presence. Now, it's been a while since we've been in John 10, in, in, in the book of John. As we pick up John 10, we see that Jesus is talking to a group of Pharisees. In fact, the chapter break from chapter 9 to chapter 10 is misleading because when we see that chapter break, we think that the scene is over. But in fact, it's the final scene from chapter 9. Verses 1 through 21 of chapter 10 form the conclusion to chapter 9 where Jesus heals a man born blind on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees took issue with Jesus performing this miracle on the Sabbath, since according to their very narrow tradition, miracle work, though it's miraculous, it's still work. And for them, all work, even miraculous work, must cease on the Sabbath. So according to their tradition, Jesus violated Sabbath law. And then following their logic out, since in their opinion, Jesus has broken the law, he is a sinner, and if he's a sinner, he cannot be sent from God. And their initial doubts about Jesus now become hardened cynicism. And at the end of John chapter 9, Jesus confronts the Pharisees and plainly tells them that though they think they're spiritually enlightened, they are in fact spiritually blind. And as John chapter 10 opens up, Jesus continues this dialogue with the Pharisees and he offers the illustration of shepherding to help them see. But since we live in a, a modern Bostonian context, we're really far removed from shepherding culture, which would have been much more familiar to them. So let me explain. Often, families would combine their flocks into a common pen since most people didn't have a herd big enough to necessitate a, 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 an entire pen. And this pen would have been enclosed by a fence with a gate. And there would have been a gatekeeper at the gate to control the coming and going of the sheep and to control who had access to the sheep. Sheep would have been very valuable for uh, their wool and for their meat. And so it would be uh, important to take care of your sheep. The gatekeeper knows who belongs inside and who doesn't. The shepherds would come each day to take care of the sheep, while thieves and robbers might come to steal from the sheep for their gain. So a family would hire a shepherd to tend to their flocks. And they would have the responsibility to care for the sheep and lead them out to green pastures for meals and to calm streams for drinking water. 
They would be responsible for protecting the flock from dangerous animals and thieves. Ultimately, their job is to ensure that the sheep thrive and that none are lost along the way. It's also well documented from shepherding culture that sheep even learn the timbre and tone of their shepherd. His voice and call is comforting to the sheep. When they hear his voice, they know it means food and provision is at hand. So even in a mixed pen with different flocks, a shepherd can come and call for his sheep and they respond and follow him. It's even well documented that the shepherd can identify each sheep from the flock with particularity, often even giving them names. See, there's this relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. There's a rhythm of presence that comforts them. There's a regular routine that nourishes them. Now, considering all of that background, listen to the words of Jesus in chapter 10. And as I read these, I want you to listen for these words of presence and relationship. Verse 1, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Let's stop right there. The shepherd is connected to his sheep. I mean, what is a shepherd without sheep anyway? The sheep need the shepherd, and the shepherd needs his sheep. And did you notice that Jesus uses possessive pronouns? They're his sheep. The sheep are his own. And when the shepherd comes, the gatekeeper recognizes him and opens the gate. Why? Because the gatekeeper knows the shepherd is there to seek the good of the sheep. He belongs with his sheep. Now, what happens when the shepherd begins to speak? Well, the sheep hear his voice. They know his voice as distinct from other people's voices, and they respond to his voice. And he's named them, and he calls them by name. You see, the shepherd is not marginally acquainted with the sheep. He knows them. He's been present with them. And he goes out before them, and the sheep follow him. And we'll see later on in verses 14 to 16 that the good shepherd takes initiative to gather his scattered sheep so that in the end, There is one shepherd and one flock. Every aspect of these verses teach us that the good shepherd gives the sheep the gift of his presence. You know, that's one thing you can't outsource to a third party in this world. You can't mimic presence through Zoom. You can't give someone else the job of being your presence. Presence by its very nature implies a nearness a connectedness, an intentionality. And not only do you have to be physically present, but you have to be emotionally present and uh, 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 present in mind. You, you can be physically present, but absent in thought and care. Everyone's experienced a conversation with someone, even who's in close proximity, and you can tell when they're not listening or don't care. They may be there in proximity, but they haven't given you the gift of their presence. 
So it's more than just physical proximity. Genuine presence means nearness, connectedness, and intentionality. What Jesus is saying here is that as the good shepherd, he has come near. He has come to be present with his sheep. He is the good shepherd with us because he is Emmanuel, God with us. Church, Jesus, our good shepherd, is present with his people. He calls us by name. He is right now leading us. The question is, are we listening to his voice? Are we following him as he leads? My brothers and sisters, are you listening to the shepherd's voice? Or are you listening to all of the competing calls of false shepherds in our culture? We live at a time when there's no shortage of voices streaming into our ears. From politicians and pundits, from news outlets to our carefully curated social media feeds, there are calls coming at us from all different directions demanding our attention. In fact, it's not an overstatement to say that we are bombarded with other voices. Could it be that our anxiety, some of the frenzy that we're feeling right now, some of the stirring is because we spend more time listening to false shepherds instead of listening to the voice of our shepherd, Savior, Jesus Christ. His voice is the answer to the frenzy. Just like the sheep respond to his voice, when they hear his voice, the shepherd's voice, it calms them. It lets them know that he is near and that provision is on the way. As a practical application, and I need to hear this too, what voices are we listening to? What are the first voices you listen to in the morning? Do you begin each day by opening up the floodgates, opening up the gates to your pen and allowing other shepherds' voices? What are the final thoughts that you think about as you go to bed at night? Who has your attention throughout the day? Whose voice are you listening to? Whose lead are you following? Friends, Jesus is the good shepherd who gives us the gift of his presence. What a gift it is. Let's not scorn that gift, but let's welcome that gift that he gives us into our hearts. Let's listen to his voice. So not only does the shepherd give us the gift of his presence, secondly, the good shepherd provides. Let's pick up the text again in verse six. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now let's stop right there. Remember, these aren't random conversations. Jesus is speaking to a group of Pharisees who are upset that he's healed a man born blind on the Sabbath. And he's offering an illustration of shepherding to help them see. But John tells us plainly, they don't pick up on what Jesus is saying. So like a good teacher, he, he begins to get more direct with his teaching. Look at verse seven. Jesus said again to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
Jesus makes a staggering indictment. He says that any who came before, who were driven by selfish motivation, who used the sheep for their own shameful gain, he says they're not shepherds. They are robbers and thieves. They have come to still kill and destroy. They don't seek the interest for the sheep. In fact, they're seeking their own selfish interest, but not the good shepherd. He comes to bring abundant life. The good shepherd provides the good life through sustenance and protection. That's what the good shepherd provides, sustenance and protection. Now here Jesus begins to mix metaphors with the door of the sheep and the shepherd of the sheep because one metaphor doesn't cover the totality of who he is. So at first he's, he's the door that leads into the safety and salvation of the fold of God. And he's also the good shepherd who leads, feeds, and protects his sheep. So what Jesus is saying, if you are looking for safety and security and salvation in your life, the one that God offers, you must go through the door. There are not many doors that lead into the safety and security and salvation of God. There is just one door, and that door has a name, and his name is Jesus Christ. And those who enter through that door find a good shepherd waiting there to lead the sheep in and out to find pasture. Think about it. What does every sheep want in life? What is the good life for sheep? It's to safely go out to pasture, to eat grass in the freedom and comfort of the shepherd's leading and protection. The shepherd knows the fields where there's abundant provision, and the shepherd is ever watchful for thieves and wolves who seek to devour the sheep. In the same way, the sheep of Jesus Christ find the good life not apart from the good shepherd, but in and through the good shepherd. He is the one, like the psalmist says in Psalm 23, that leads us to still waters and green pastures so that our bodies and souls would enjoy and be filled with his provision. The abundant life Jesus offers is ours to have when we abandon all other shepherds and all other means of finding sustenance and provision. I mean, isn't that how humanity got into this problem in the first place? Our first parents, Adam and Eve, rejected God's provision and sought their own provision apart from God. And each one of us, born as a son and daughter of Adam and Eve, we do the exact same thing. We seek sustenance and protection apart from Christ, and the result is hunger and restlessness. In her song, All is Vanity, singer-songwriter Caroline Cobb writes it like this. She says, if there is restlessness, could there be rest? If there is hunger, could there be fullness? What's her point? She's saying that the very fact of our restlessness points to the reality that we were made for rest. The fact of our hunger points to the reality that we were made for fullness. That rest, that fullness is found in Jesus Christ as he provides for our every need. So we have to ask family, where do you go to find fullness of joy and abundance of life? Because if it's not Jesus, it will not provide what you need. If, you find, if you're looking for rest and, and fullness apart from Christ, you will only find momentary pleasure, fleeting security, and temporary happiness. So right now, 
Think about the people and places, the ideas and beliefs that you have run to over the last 90 days. In the midst of these tumultuous and frenzied times, one upshot to these times is because it's caused a stir, because it's tumultuous, because it's frenzied, we, we by nature run to people and places, ideas and things to find rest and fullness. Where have you gone? Have other shepherds mimicked rest and fullness? See, our restlessness and our hunger is meant to point us to Christ, the good shepherd who abundantly provides for his sheep. Where did this truth need to shape your beliefs this morning? Where do you need to call out false shepherds, false provision? And where do you need to run to Christ for fullness of joy? Where does this truth need to shape your desires? And what behaviors need to begin changing so that they come in alignment with this truth? We'll have these questions in the study guide this week for you to consider as you spend time with the Lord marinating on this passage. So we've seen that Jesus is the good shepherd who gives us the gift of his presence and his provision. Now let's look at the last few verses to see the shepherd's promise. Look at verse 11 at the very beginning. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Now again, we have to stop right there. So far, Jesus has talked about how the shepherd cares for his sheep. He's identified himself as the door to the sheep pen. Now he makes another I am statement. He says, I am the good shepherd. Remember, we told you at the beginning of our study of John that there are seven I am statements in John's gospel. And so far, Jesus has said, I am the bread of life and I am the light of the world. And now he's added, I am the door and I am the good shepherd. So if we were to summarize this, what Jesus is saying, for those who hunger, Jesus says, I am your bread. For those who walk in darkness, Jesus says, I am your light. For those who need the security of home, Jesus says, I am your door. And for those who need the present loving care of a savior, Jesus says, I am your good shepherd. Now we might miss this, but when Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd, he is drawing on rich biblical imagery. I've already mentioned Psalm 23, where the Lord God is identified as the shepherd, the one who is present with his people, the one who provides for his people, and who promises life everlasting for his people. But there's uh, several other passages. One in particular is Ezekiel chapter 34. I would encourage you to read that chapter this week. It will bring new enlightenment on John chapter 10. And through the prophet Ezekiel, the Lord says that the leaders of Israel have been inadequate shepherds. They've sought selfish gain. They've neglected the care of his people. He says, in fact, the sheep have become thin because the shepherds have only fed themselves. He says that the shepherds have now become prey because the shepherds have not done their job to protect them. And at the, uh, towards the middle of that passage, the Lord makes a promise to his people. Pick it up with me in verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered 
on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. And there they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy and I will feed them in justice. And then in verse 23, he concludes, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. He shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Now again, remember, Jesus is talking to a group of Pharisees who knew their Bibles inside and out. They would have known these messianic verses. These are verses they would have been studying with great anticipation as they eagerly awaited God to send this servant of David, this one shepherd who would lead and feed his people, who would gather them back together. Now with that background, listen to the words of Christ. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, he does not own the sheep. Sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Right now, Jesus has moved from illustration to identification. He is telling him, the promised shepherd of Ezekiel is now here. The one who gathers his sheep, the one who cares for his sheep, the one the Father has appointed as shepherd over his sheep is here. I am the good shepherd. And as the good shepherd, I am willing to lay down my life for the sheep. The hired hand does not care for the sheep like the good shepherd does. The hired hand is willing to work and make a dollar, but when danger comes, when sacrifice is required, the hired hand flees, but not the good shepherd. When danger comes, he lays down his life to protect the sheep from their enemies. 
The good shepherd is the one who gathers his sheep by laying down his life and picking it up again. And for those who have ears to hear their shepherd, Jesus is saying, I will go to the cross. I will lay down my life, not as a helpless victim, but as the good shepherd who gives up his life for the good of the sheep. And after three days, the good shepherd will rise again, defeating death to uh, uh, resume his rightful place as the shepherd prince. The promise of the good shepherd is that he will abandon his life to give you his abundant life. At the end of the day, every one of us has to figure out how we will escape the claws of death. You might be savvy and be able to shelter yourself from economic ruin and relational hardship and tragedy. And again, that's a huge maybe. But no one can protect themselves from death. The only hope is that God has sent a shepherd savior to lay down his life in your place. Now, as he finishes saying all these things, how do the people respond? Look at verse 19. There was again, again, a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who was oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? You see that word again? Division. It's come up over and over. The claims of Jesus will divide. The I am statements of Jesus do not leave room for middle ground. He's either insane, possessed by a demon, or he's the one who can open the eyes of the blind. He's either the good shepherd or is a charlatan. He's either the savior of the world or a con artist. And our response is required. Friends, this passage is calling us to consider who Jesus is. He gave us I am statements. He's saying, this is who I am. What will we believe? When someone makes a claim of identity, we have to decide if it's true or not. And remember, that's the whole point of John's gospel, is that we would consider who Jesus is. And after considering it, we would believe in him and have abundant life. Family, Jesus is the good shepherd we need in order to have the good life we're made for. He is the doorway to life. He is the shepherd who leads you there. He is abundant life itself. So let's abandon our pursuit to try to achieve life. And instead, let's receive his provision of abundant life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good shepherd. Thank you that you saw us in our helplessness without a good shepherd, growing thin with the perils and dangers all around us. And you looked at our situation and you sent a Savior. You sent us our good shepherd. And so, Father, forgive us for so many times rejecting him, listening to the false shepherds of our culture, trying to find provision and rest and fullness in all of the wrong places. 
God, would you teach us to listen to and to desire the voice of our good shepherd? Thank you that in him we have fullness of joy. We have the gift of his good presence. We have the gift of his provision. And we have the gift of his promise. Would we build our life on that? We love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.